and welcome back to Season 3 of the podcast. This podcast centers around topics that may be of interest to Ponderosa Commons residents and beyond here on the UBC Vancouver campus. My name is Ivona and I will be your host today. I'm a geography, environment, and sustainability student who uses she, her pronouns and works as a residence advisor here at Pond. Before we begin, I'd like to start off with a land acknowledgement. Whether you live, work, or study at UBC, it is important that we acknowledge and respect that UBC is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam peoples. Unceded meaning land that was never legally given away. I would also like to acknowledge that through this virtual platform, many folks may be joining us from all around the world. Therefore, it is important to take the time to acknowledge who the traditional caretakers of those lands are as well. For this season of the podcast, we are interviewing various members of the UBC community who work in the realm of sustainability. So whether you are studying in the field of sustainability, interested in sustainability and want to learn more, or even if you don't know anything about this topic, this podcast is for everyone and we hope you enjoy it. Today, we are incredibly fortunate to introduce our guest, Alec Blair. Alec Blair is a landscape painter and professor within the geography department here at UBC. Whether you are a geography major or not, I highly recommend taking a course with Professor Blair. I was lucky enough to take Geography 318, Sustainability in a Changing Environment, and the course definitely made me think about sustainability and the environment in a different light. So thank you very much, Professor Blair, for being here today. Thanks. So you can call me Alec. Wonderful. To <laughs> start off, tell us how you got to where you are today. Sure. Okay. Well, as uh, Ivana there you introduced, my name is Alec Blair and I am, I'm a lecturer in the department right now and I've been working in the geography department at UBC for the last, uh, coming up on six years now. Um, I started off my undergraduate, I grew up in Vancouver and started off my undergraduate uh, experience at, at UBC actually. So I was a student in animal biology with a history minor and uh, thought that that's what I wanted to go into, but um was lucky enough to go on a field school um, that UBC uh, was partnered with McGill University in, in my fourth year in East Africa. I went there and had uh, a really sort of eye-opening experience about the interconnectedness, the potential for studying, not just conservation biology, not just the dynamics of ecology, but how that intersected with um, human concerns of uh, social concerns, economic concerns, equity concerns and how that all really needed to be approached holistically and geography it turned out was the perfect discipline to do that and so I went in and did my master's uh, at McGill looking at human wildlife interactions human wildlife conflict in central Kenya and uh, and then went on to work on my PhD there which I'm in the final stages of, of concluding now which also looked at the emergence of community conservation and uh, land use changes in, again, central Kenya, how it sort of became adopted, uh, this uh, approach or this affinity for, for conservation there in terms of local communities. Anyway, so after working on that for a while, I was lucky enough to, to get a chance to teach here at UBC a couple of years ago as a sessional instructor. And then I've just been sort of, yeah, uh, putting more and more courses on my uh, sort of menu and uh, find myself where I am today. So, so that's sort of the, the UBC uh, aspect of, of that and geography and then the landscape painting and stuff I can talk about um, as well, but really grew from a hobby and an interest in that and then a growing um, 
desire to see ideas about conservation and the environment um, intersect with our ideas about uh, art and identity and who we are particularly in Canada. Very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. So now, what would you say is a typical day in your role? What is it that you do? What is it specifically the area that you focus right now? Yeah, so, uh, well, when courses, let's talk about when courses are usually running, because right now, a little bit of a break. So right now, it's mostly prep and thinking about September. Um, but when I am teaching, so say in the fall, I'll be teaching three courses in geography. So a lot of time prepping for that, and then obviously, um, delivering courses. So when we're online, that's a lot of recording lectures and attending to the Canvas page and obviously answering emails. Um, and then when we're in person, it's a lot of doing, still answering emails, but also uh, talking in person and, and also mostly the same thing, except just you do stuff in person as well. So uh, spend a lot of time doing that. And then um, I do a, a fair amount of my own research per se. So my, my role at UBC is prim- is just teaching as, as a lecturer or as a sessional instructor. I'm my role is primarily teaching. So the research that I do is independent of that and mostly right now focuses on art history. And so I work a lot with the estate of a Canadian artist or uh, Lauren Harris, who was an artist who in for much of the 20th century, one of the leading uh, artists in the group of seven, which is a very prominent school of Canadian landscape art. And so I work with the, inven- uh, with the estate working on an inventory of his works. So I spent a lot of my time not teaching uh, writing essays about that and sort of putting together a, a catalog of his work. And then, you know, free time. Free time is very important. So thank you for sharing about that. Now going, because you mentioned a bit about like landscape art, but just in general, would you be able to explain how can art be used to teach others about issues such as climate change, whether it's landscape art, whether it's photography, what other art form there is, how do you think that can be used? Yeah, well, I think one of the really interesting things for me, so coming into geography, I've always sort of um, seen geography as this, for me, uh, ever-expanding opportunity to look at how things intersect. And so, whereas I came from looking in my undergrad primarily at biology and conservation, and then was able to bring that into conversation with uh, human interests and concerns more directly in my master's, what I'm really interested in now are how ideas, constructions, social constructions of nature, of ideas about wilderness shape our relationship to the environment, what we care about, um, what we value, and, and therefore what actions we take or, or what things we have um, support for or perhaps are, are eager to, to not see any longer in our world, sort of the ways that we shape our, our potential futures. And so I think art is a really interesting way of examining that because it makes those sort of constructions, those subjectivities, extremely obvious and extremely upfront. You know, no one looking at particularly a painting um, most often uh, sees it as a literal representation of the world. There's obviously the assumed agency of the artist. And so we recognize that there has been some inherent distortion to the world, that we're seeing it through someone's perspective. Well, of course, we need to view many other things like that, science, Uh, as much as it uh, has the goal of being objective, is obviously always shaped by the biases of the researchers, of the subjects, of the system in which it's conducted. So art can act as a really, uh, I think, interesting and engaging way to sort of introduce students in an environment and sustainability uh, context to that concept and understand that the simplicity of the world that they perhaps 
imagined can be complicated really easily. And art is a, a really, for me, a really engaging way to do that because it's so obvious that it's got these lenses uh, between the observer and the reality. Uh, and then also just because it, it can uh, spark a really emotional response and a really deep response in a way that you can't really get from directly lecturing somebody or talking to somebody. The way that art, that we respond to art can be intellectual and can be sort of this logical understanding of it, but also can be really visceral and emotional and sort of uh, indescribable um, interaction. There obviously stays with people. I mean, films, poems, books, pieces of art, photographs, these are things that resonate with people throughout their lives. You see a movie one time, it can alter your view of the world in a way that I couldn't hope to in, you know, in an entire course of lectures. You, you can't sometimes convince somebody of these things, but having an alternate form of experience is, is a way to really viscerally experience these things sometimes, or on the flip side, to express some of these things and to work through them oneself. So I think it's yeah, I mean, there's so much potential there. I, I could go on and on, but that is a little bit about why I find it so engaging because I think it's really um, approachable. Um, I think it's really individual in terms of how we can interpret and stuff. So it allows everybody, there's no correct way to do it. There's no single way to do it. It allows everybody that agency. And um, yeah, I think it's really uh, powerful. So, yeah. There's so much to unpack in what you just said, but I think one point that you did mention was that the artist has agency. So I think in that sense, how would you say that different painters, since they do different painters may portray the landscape in different ways, how does that perhaps change or shape our understanding of the environment? Yeah, well, that's a, a great question and one that's super pertinent to the type of art specifically that I'm most interested in, which is because of just what I was exposed to, the type of art that I also really enjoy, which is usually uh, Canadian landscape painting, um, which is inherently a process of selection all throughout by the artist and a, a um, depiction of, of a narrative that the artist chooses to, to convey. And historically, there's been Canadian landscape art for people that aren't familiar is, is best sort of canonized through looking at the most prominent artists, which were the Canadian uh, so-called group of seven, which were artists that were active in basically in the 1920s, um, painting a lot of Canadian landscapes. And there's so much more that I could go into about them and about contemporaries and stuff much beyond that, but that's sort of the, the simplest part. And, um, but what has been rightfully critiqued about these artists is the sort of narrow lens through which they depicted the Canadian landscape, which is not the fault of the artist. An artist is only beholden to their own narrative and their own message. But the way that institutionally Canadian institutions, um, museums, galleries, but also uh, just societal organizations have latched onto particular ideas about Canadian identity, those connected to this idea of a depeopled landscape of Canada as this sort of um, open, empty, wild, so-called wild land um, is really rightfully Critiqued, And these were choices that the artists made to set themselves, you know, the depiction of certain scenes, whether they were dead trees and sort of uh, beaver flooded lakes or uh, vast stretches of uh, supposedly uninhabited forest or, or mountain ranges, etc. These were things that resonated with the artists, particularly artists that were urban artists, much as we've seen historically in many contexts, a sort of romanticization of the wilderness, but also things that set them apart from uh, Britain and from Europe, which at the time 
the idea of a national identity in Canada in the early uh, 20th century was particularly strong and sort of establishing their own visual language was something that was at the forefront of these artists' ideas. So all this very intentional stuff by the artists, all these intentional choices, then have these ramifications about how those pictures and those ideas have been adopted and how they shape our values now and what we think of as important. And if I just really quickly give a, another totally different example, uh, one of my favorite ones, because I went on this field school in East Africa uh, in 2005 when I was at the end of my undergrad, and then I worked on it for seven years uh, doing risk management and, and teaching and stuff like that. I was amazed, and also I probably held this viewpoint too, at the number of students whose reference point for seeing something like uh, the Maasai Mara uh, National Reserve in Kenya or the Serengeti in Tanzania, these sort of vast, epic rangelands uh, filled with wildlife and iconic acacia trees, how often and consistent the reaction of students was um, saying, oh my gosh, this looks exactly like the Lion King. This looks, ex you know, this is exact, and this is what they wanted to see. And so just the unbelievable impact that a, a animated film, a single piece of art has had on generations of um, people in particular contexts where that was their main exposure to something as vast and uh, complex and uh, diverse as the East African landscape um, really illustrates how like these pieces of art can set a narrative. And the important thing about that, of course, is that nowhere in The Lion King do people make an appearance, nor do cattle make an appearance of any sort. Um, and that has become this ideal of, or imagined ideal of what Africa should be. And it didn't start with The Lion King, but it certainly has been perpetuated for many that that was an early you know, uh, impactful impression of it. And that resonates with how we imagine conservation in East Africa and how we imagine the ideal of what a park should look like there or what conservation should look like and how people should be involved or not. And right now you've got parks there uh, and conservancies there where there are very specific rules about how people are allowed to exist in them and local people, what the types of buildings are allowed to build, the colors of cars that are allowed in there to maintain a certain aesthetic. So it can have a huge impact, I think, in how we imagine ourselves, our identity to these places, and how these selections or these choices of artists can then lead to um, shaping what we value. It reflects what people value and then it shapes further um, people's values and, and therefore our relationships. Yeah, it truly is amazing how it does set a narrative and it was something I had never really considered prior to entering your class and I was like wow you know you do have these preconceived thoughts of how a place will look or something because of these paintings and perhaps we have grown up with these drawings so it is quite amazing but in terms of specific like landscape art what is it, if there's anything else you want to add, what is it about landscape art as opposed to other forms of art that really sets it apart? Yeah, I mean, specifically for me, I'm interested in painting just because that's something that I also like to do and have been drawn to. I think, you know, photography, there's been some really excellent photography recently in recent decades that, that explores the relationship between humans and their environment, in particular, Canadian photographer like Edward Bertinsky, the work that he does in this most recent Anthropocene project and associated film, I think was hugely uh, evocative and Olafur Eliasson, who's another artist that I like also has done significant stuff with photography as well. But for me, um, landscape painting in particular, that form of art is just so 
so obviously, um, as I said, this selective process that's so obviously a, a shaped distilled narrative about the world. And I, I find when it works well and when it gets at these sort of core elements of sort of these intangible aspects of the world, it can really distill them down in, in almost indescribably impactful way where you don't even understand why necessarily something resonates so much. So I have always been drawn to that. And I grew up in Vancouver, but I spent my summers in Ontario, um, which is classic, uh, quote, group of seven territory, if you will, where the, the types of trees that are depicted there, the types of sort of Georgian Bay or Algonquin landscapes are so commonly depicted in these sort of iconic Canadian images like Tom Thompson's Jack Pine or, you know, many, many works by, by those artists that appear on stamps, that appear on posters, that appear on coffee mugs, on placemats, whatever you want. Um, that for me, I just, yeah, was drawn to that. I, I really like that. And I like now in terms of these discussions, how obvious it is to show the, the distortions there. I mean, that's the whole point of, of most contemporary modern painting, except for hyper realism is to, you know, not have it look exactly like it is. The whole point is to understand the perspective of the artist. You mentioned the group of seven. Would you be able to go into a bit more detail about that? Yeah, yeah, I can go into a lot more detail, but I will spare you the uh, the time that I would enjoy uh, going on and on about that. Um, yeah, but I could definitely. Uh, so Group of Seven was basically a group of artists that formed sort of uh, informally in the 1914-1915, came together in Toronto, a few uh, commercial artists, and then particularly the one that I have the most exposure to is Lauren Harris, who wasn't a commercial artist, was um, actually quite wealthy, uh, one of the uh, inheritors of the Massey Harris um, fortune, which was a farm implement company that was one of the richest families in Canada at the time. Um, so he was able to sort of organize uh, for sketching trips for himself and his companions who would take some time off work. And what ended up being a loose group prior to World War I, after uh, the war sort of coalesced in terms of uh, exhibiting together as this so-called group of seven that started off confusingly as seven and then uh, one left. And so they added a, a new seventh and then they added an eighth and a ninth. Um, so there are a total of 10 members of the so-called group of seven uh, over the course of it. But uh, they basically tried to forge a specific so-called Canadian um, form of landscape painting that was Canadian in the sense that it differed from European subjects. So whereas the pastoral scenes and sort of diffuse light of um, Dutch paintings or, or uh, paintings from England were replaced with sort of the more direct whole light of the North that they sort of had seen in some Scandinavian art and wanted to create here in Canada. And basically they started doing that, became pretty successful during the twenties in terms of their institutional acceptance, pictures purchased by important collectors and importantly by some important galleries like the Art Gallery of Toronto, now the Art Gallery of Ontario, and the National Gallery. Um, they then disbanded in 1932 once they sort of had established what they wanted. Their sort of their need for a collective approach had been success had succeeded in uh, achieving what uh, what they wanted so it was no longer necessary and then reformed as the Canadian group of painters which then included a much broader uh, range of painters from across Canada and now included 
famously, I guess the, the group seven or infamously perhaps group seven was solely uh, male, but in the Canadian group of painters, now you had one third of the painters were female. You had painters from all across the country, including West Coast representation like uh, Emily Carr was a member of the Canadian group of painters and a range of painters. There were still some obvious uh, glaring gaps, let's say in, in diversity there, but it was a growing move towards a more diverse depiction of the Canadian landscape with the idea of expanding just beyond sort of the vision of a few artists, which created this sort of language of depicting Canada to hopefully embrace a broader thing. So yeah, that's a brief history of that, I suppose. Thank you for sharing. Also, just if folks want to go online or anything, the pictures are quite amazing. If folks are searching up a group of seven, even just on your image search, it's quite incredible. Yeah. Going specifically more to a UBC article that you were involved in, we can link that in our Spotify caption as well. Um, you mentioned that art is a way to be passionate about the same things that worry you so much in examining some of the environmental crises that you teach about. Would you be able to elaborate more on this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, there's uh, seldom, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you know, it seems like right now we are particularly inundated coming out of a, obviously or not coming out of it, perhaps still in the throes of a global pandemic um, in the midst here in British Columbia of yet another summer of um, wildfire uh, emergencies, um, likewise around the globe, flooding, extreme weather sort of becoming more and more dominant seeming or, or frequent in, in, in what we hear about. And I think I have the privilege of teaching a couple of courses, including one called uh, Geography of Natural Hazards, which I'm teaching in the fall. And as, uh, you know, due diligence and part of my job, obviously, it's important to look at and understand all the ongoing news about wildfires that are happening here and elsewhere in the world at different times and then things like floods and, of course, um, issues related to the pandemic. That all can be, uh, well, it's, it's not the most uplifting subject matter. It is in the sense that students are interested in learning about it. It is hopeful, but it can be, and I think this is a common experience for students, certainly some that I've talked to, it can be a little demoralizing at times, obviously, to, to re, yeah, to be focused on the, these very troubling things. And I think very soon there'll be a new uh, report coming out from the IPCC about climate change that I anticipate will also be significantly troubling. Um, so in this sort of field, you are forced to confront a lot of discomfort and uh, concern. What art for me uh, personally does is it allows a different way to interact with those things. I was lucky enough last week to go camping um, in Jasper. Uh, well, I guess pertinently, I was supposed to, I had planned to go on the Berg Lake Trail, which is Mount Robson, but because of early season flooding, um, which is, of course, again, another uh, potential connection to extreme uh, climate emergency related phenomena, uh, the trails closed for the summer. So I was instead camping in Jasper and wanting to do a bunch of painting. And of course, as much of the province uh, and, and much of the, the Western uh, areas in North America was inundated by uh, by smoke and that alters the views a lot it alters the the ability to, to 
to see things uh, as well as your enjoyment of spending time outside and the sort of ominous cloud and reminder of uh, the, yeah, the concerns that are on my mind anyway is something that is, uh, yeah, that I, you just need some other way to engage us. So for me, painting that stuff and trying to find some opportunities for uh, not necessarily, I don't know, finding beauty is the right word, but I think finding interest, that's the thing that I love. And I mentioned it before, the, the photography of Edward Bertinsky and the associated film that came out, I would recommend anybody, Anthropocene, which came out three or four years ago, um, because it looks at a lot of these, the scale of, of human-induced change on our planet, which is characteristic and the defining characteristic, I suppose, of the Anthropocene era, um, the recognition of those changes. And you can still find a lot of interest there. You can still find a lot of aesthetic beauty in a troubling way. And I think there is, in some ways, even when you're um, not in the midst of, uh, you know, human-induced uh, ecological collapse, I think that there is a very fine line sometimes between beauty and, and terror, sort of. When you're in the mountains, there is this sort of, like, uh, fascination with feeling very tiny, with feeling overwhelmed and stuff that resonates in a sometimes uncomfortable way, but um, is a very real thing there. Anyway, the idea being that there's this close connection between beauty and terror and that you can find interesting things in the, in the subject material. So for me, um, a way to deal with the sort of ominous specter of wildfire smoke was trying to find new ideas about what to paint or new areas of interest or new things to depict. And Whereas that doesn't uh, necessarily, you know, that's not that big of a silver lining on this uh, very nauseous cloud of, of smoke. It is something that allows you to interact with it that's not solely um, sort of nail-bitingly um, tense. And it allows for a different way to sort of internalize it, to accept it, and then also, um, yeah, to figure out how to adapt. I think that that's the the number one thing that we might all need to be confronting um, is figuring out obviously how to adapt to what is bound to be uh, changing, continually changing uh, ways of living and interacting in the environment. Yeah, most definitely. In one of my classes, we looked at a glacier and it's melting. And so from this year versus how it's melting, I don't know, 20 years later, 100 years later. And I know that sometimes you can be in a class and you can be getting thrown numbers out to you and you're like, oh, okay, a glacier has melted X amount. And sometimes it kind of goes over your head. But when you really see the images of something changing, it really makes me feel more connected to what it is that I'm researching about or learning about and makes me more passionate in that. So I think art is an incredible form, things like that as well. Definitely. There's a really interesting, just really quickly, if anyone, they should look up uh, Olafur Eliasson, who I mentioned before, this Danish uh, Icelandic artist who did this uh, project where he called Ice Watch, where he brought large pieces of Greenland ice to, uh, one of them was to London and put them out in front of the Tate Modern. And just this idea of this visceral experience of people touching ice, and he talks about it very much more eloquently, but about how people know ice is cold, uh, we obviously all know, but having these huge chunks of ice people touching them, most people's reaction at first is like, ooh, it's cold. Like, you know it's cold, but to experience it physically in that way is very, very different. And his art is fantastic, it, you know, very, very different than the landscape art that I was talking about, much more um, sort of uh, conceptual and experiential sort of things. But uh, highly recommend checking out um, his stuff as well, because I think 
he gets at that a lot, how these different ways of experiencing phenomena and um, internalizing the reality of it, um, art can be hugely educational in that sense, in a way that it's almost impossible to get the same impression from reading or from hearing somebody speak about it. Wonderful. And for our um, listeners, we will link everything in our little comments section as well. But you did mention briefly, you mentioned the Anthropocene movie. Would you be able to quickly, just for any viewers who may not know, what is the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene era? Yeah. Um, The Anthropocene, okay, very basically, is a way of conceptualizing an era of the earth. And it's not without... uh, debate or contestation. I mean, this is a subjective category, but it is a geological era that has been agreed upon in many, uh, let's say, scientific, there's scientific consensus now that we've entered this new geologic age. So exiting what previously was the Holocene, which is the last basically 12,000 years when human civilization became increasingly more complex, where agriculture and the ability to harness um, Increasingly complex forms of uh, extraction from the earth allowed for more complex civilizations and a period of stability allowed for predictability that allowed essentially for human thriving and human uh, society's expansion. We've come out of that into a new geologically distinct era recognized as what's called the Anthropocene. And there's some debate over that title, but the, the just or sort of the the basic gist of it is that it's an era where humans have become a dominant geological force where the signature of humanity's impact will be recognizable in the geologic geological record um, for millennia to come so if in the future an advanced uh, alien species arrives on earth and does core samples they would be able to distinguish this era that we're living in from others which doesn't necessarily sound that relatable. But the important thing is it's a recognition, a a new reframing of how humans in many parts of the world see themselves. And it's not ubiquitous. There are many um, societies and communities that have never distinguished between uh, so-called humans and nature, never had that sort of dichotomous view. But one of the dominant worldviews, certainly, so-called Western view has had that separation for centuries, at least, where we've seen humans as separate from the rest of the world. The Anthropocene is, in a way, um, a critique of that and a demonstration of how interlocked humans are to these other global-scale systems and how global-scale systems are, of course, exerting influence on human society perpetually and how the interplay between the two is uh, indistinguishable. You, you can't separate them into two different spheres, spheres. So the utility of the Anthropocene, I think, is in recognizing just a shift in this dominant worldview of humans as somehow distinct from the world around them and in recognizing, yeah, that that is uh, not the best way to think about our place in the world. <laughs> And that it's led to some pretty large-scale, frankly, terrifying alterations to the systems that we depend upon, and particularly the stability of those systems, which was the characteristic of the Holocene that allowed us to flourish so much and allowed the predictability um, that, uh, yeah, enabled us to have reliable agriculture and everything that followed after that. 
Yeah, most definitely the impact that um, humans have had on the physical environment is uh, undeniable. Now moving a little bit away from art, what does sustainability mean to you? How would you define that term? Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's a tricky question because I think the core, I, I would uh, always uh, have a caveat that sustainability really means a ton of different things. And there is no single definition. And that's one of the important things about it. That is, you know, sort of core meta definition of it is that sustainability means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You can take a literal definition, which is sort of this perpetuation of a process or a set of conditions indefinitely. Um, and you can run with that and have it mean many, many different things, all of which then rely to some degree on the perspective of the person describing it or, or the interested party describing it. What, of course, we understand is sustainability in the context of, say, a course that I teach environment and sustainability or the broader accepted uh, notion is one where we talk about the persistence over time of conditions in the environment and as well in the social and economic spheres generally, sort of these different aspects. And you could go beyond just those three, but those are the main three sort of uh, spheres that we might consider. Um, conditions in these systems that allow for contemporary thriving and success without compromising the ability in the future for other uh, participants in those systems to enjoy uh, the same opportunities for thriving and success. Was that clear? Yes, sustainability is a very broad term and we kind of did just throw it at you to be like, hey, can you please define? Um, sure. Since there are so many different definitions and people may say different things, we've definitely asked on different episodes of the, this podcast, we have asked other folks as well. Do you think that because there are so many different definitions and so many people might view sustainability differently, like um, how they define it, do you think that adds to the difficulty of trying to create a more sustainable planet? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because I think so it's a, it, a term like sustainability or sustainable development, um, which is very closely related. The reason those terms are so popular and widespread and adopted is because they are so malleable. So their sort of vagueness is inherently connected to their success because it can mean so many things. Therefore, everybody can identify with their own form of sustainability. Um, it's an important idea to consider the future, to consider issues of equity and equality. Of course, that goes without saying, but it is sort of this um, challenging boat to take the journey in because it can really easily, easily lead you on a range of different pathways under the same sort of language or under the, the misconception that we're all talking about the same thing. And so one of the things that I teach, and I think I focus on this mostly in uh, all my courses have very similar titles with the word sustainability and the word environment in them. But I think sustainability in a changing environment, um, we talk about the need to interrogate what sustainability means and to realize that because it is value-laden, because it is something that is subjective, because it is so malleable, we need to understand that when talking about a sustainable future, we're talking about choosing what to sustain and choosing what makes a future uh, desirable and other things not desirable and that that is inherently subjective and therefore there are power relations so that course talks a lot about political ecology and the dynamics of uh, interactions with the environment with respect to, to power imbalances or power relations but I think that as powerful as and sort of pervasive as discussions of sustainability have become 
it is the challenge inherent in that is that we're not all necessarily talking about the same thing. And what somebody might be considering as a primarily environmental um, issue, saying this idea of uh, a socio-ecological system that is that we want to preserve the basic fundamental physical characteristics of in order to support life into the future might be very different from what somebody in say a uh, market-based context is talking about with respect to sustainability which much be which might be tied much more directly to uh, shorter timelines or, or other sort of values yeah most definitely I remember walking into your geography class 318 and I remember thinking to myself like everyone does have their own definition but what I found so interesting was that not only does everyone have their own definition but what people define as sustainable and what they don't define as sustainable is different as well. For example, you use, you talked about trophy hunting in that class. And I remember thinking, thinking to myself, like trophy hunting is not sustainable. I don't understand why someone would kill an animal for recreational purposes. To me, I, I was like, you're just killing off elephants, for example, or a different species. And I remember you talking about the example of, of trophy hunting specifically in Botswana when the trophy hunting ban was lifted and the local community was rejoicing because of this. And it was because now that they could sustain their crops, they could ensure the survival of humans and they could maintain the population of elephants that were there. So there was a different perspective that I had never really considered before. Is there anything that you can add on to that or anything that you would like to add to that? Yeah, no, just first of all, I'm very happy to hear that you recalled all that from the class and, and were able to understand that. It's very heartening for me to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I was interested in, obviously, I, I did my graduate field work all in uh, central Kenya, mostly, and being very much an outsider there. Um, I spent a lot of time there during that period, and but I obviously didn't grow up there and had a very different perspective going in about the ideals of conservation but most importantly, what it meant to actually live with wildlife, what it meant to exist in a system where for millennia, people have coexisted with wildlife, where they have lived in these um, systems where there were elephants there, there were lions, there were hyenas. And as the world has shifted, particularly in the last few decades, land use in the, in the area that I was looking at has shifted a lot. You do have a change in relationship there, but you do have this history of... Um, sort of symbiotic relationships in, in these contexts, including antagonism between, the, you know, it's not all the Lion King. It's not all that. And so the idea of uh, outsiders purely judging based on outside values, what should or shouldn't happen in these areas and what's sustainable and what's not is problematic in that context as it is in any context. And that doesn't mean that people can't have opinions and of course can't have personal feelings about things as um, contentious, let's say, and ethically fraught as things like trophy hunting. But it, we do, I think, run into some really confounding complexity when we start to judge these things from an entirely sort of divorced perspective of it. So issues like um, elephant hunting, which are extremely contentious, and, and since the 1980s, uh, concerns over elephant populations in ivory, have, of course, been an international conservation. But even more recently, uh, discussions about things like the lion that was killed, um, Cecil the lion a few years ago, and sort of the international outrage that erupted from that, 
Well, I think that it's really interesting to sort of look at that. And in one of the courses, I do talk about that. And I talk about that in contrast to our own relationship to things like factory farming and things like our own relationship to food and how we value certain types of life and certain processes and, and certain contexts over other ones. And that when you start to break down those ethical judgments, so there's moral judgments about why something is wrong versus why it's right, it's much more important to reflect on our own choices and how we're defending our own choices rather than to sort of be judgmental from afar about things that, that we really don't know all the details about. And so judgment about what's sustainable and what's not, there was a lot of concern after Cecil the Lion, which I'm not necessarily um, condoning nor condemning uh, that incident there, but just what happened afterwards in terms of the international pressure that it put on local trophy hunting industries by a lot of people in those systems in areas in Southern Africa where it happened, there was a lot of concern about what would happen for funding for conservation if this industry all of a sudden disappeared or, or had huge um, constraints put on it because it was a part of a, a certain type of sustainability there was this type of hunting that funded other things like habitat protection. And, you know, at the bottom line, habitat loss is the number one driver of population extirpations and, and extinctions and stuff like that, much more so than the a little bit easier to maybe politicize or the little uh, narrativize maybe uh, issues of, of hunting or, or say poaching and stuff like that. You know, we're a lot closer to where we are right now in terms of the crises of biological annihilation because of land use change, because of habitat uh, reductions due to all the, you know, because of all the things that are intimately connected to uh, what we do here in terms of resources that we use, food that we eat, uh, ways that we live, uh, you know, things that are mined, things that are extracted from these areas all around the world uh, are a lot more related to that than perhaps single individual elements. So it becomes very complex, which I guess is the, uh, the takeaway. It is very interesting to see like what we as society have constructed as the norm and what we decide isn't the norm. And I know with the example with Cecile the Lion, it was actually last summer you were doing a recording about it specifically. Um, and I was watching the recording and you were talking about Cecile the Lion. And then you were eating, I believe, a beef burger or something while yeah. the the recording was going on. And I, I had very much when I heard about Cecile the Lion, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, why would you do that? And I remember you eating the burger and I thought to myself, I was like, oh, it's a little odd to be eating a burger now. Like you, you could have stopped the recording, even though I know that having a plant-based diet is better in terms of your carbon footprint. It was just interesting to see how like both things, maybe I was like, oh, this is not okay. But I had such a greater like reaction to Cecile the Lion than you eating that beef burger there because that's been the norm that people go out to restaurants or something and they're going to be eating meat or something but I'm not seeing somebody you know killing a lion for example and it, it, just that sheer difference in my emotion was very interesting to see. Yeah that's one of the you know sort of gimmicky things that I do like to do is is to bring that home I do feel sometimes a little uh, guilty for eating specifically eating meat. I used to do it in person in class and buy a ham sandwich in the, in the suburb, uh, the nest and, uh, and bring it to class and just sort of apologize and eat it while talking about the stuff. The point being bringing up this contrast of something that's very societally acceptable as eating meat and something that of course people have opinions on. And of course it's something that is important that I personally uh, 
you know, will admit to doing, but also try to reduce and stuff like that. I think that it's a very important thing and something that, uh, well, certainly something that I'm working on, but grew up accepting as a norm and accepting as something that was ethically justifiable. And just bringing those types of things into contrast with something that's so easily condemnable because we're so removed from it. And then saying, well, okay, before we condemn that, we need to really be able to take responsibility for our own actions and, and not uh, give ourselves a pass just because we don't see the process of violence and uh, cruelty or whatever that goes into the production of these things that we so innocently and naively acquire from a, you know, a restaurant or something like that, that it's, it's so removed from that, that it becomes really easy to feign ignorance about it. And when you see something like trophy hunting, you know, that's much more direct in your face violence. It's very easy to then have a visceral reaction, but it's obviously, yeah, the, the point being uh, just to highlight that, that inherent contradiction perhaps, or that, that tension there. So I'm glad that that made some sense because I do feel like, yeah, it is awfully rude, especially now with recording lectures, just to bring my lunch into the middle of a video recording. But I, it, it, it had a purpose, yeah. Definitely a unique way of thinking about something. Yeah. So um, when talking about sustainability, it is important to not only look at like the physical environment, but also economic and social factors. What changes have you observed within these different factors to sustainability? Well, I think that, you know, more and more, um, we're seeing obviously how these are all interrelated and the stuff that's happened over the past year and a half with respect to um, uh, a global pandemic illustrates that all the more sort of obviously and urgently, the fact that everything is connected, that health can't be disconnected from the environment and health can't be disconnected from ecology and ecological systems and none of those can be disconnected from ideas about social equity all of these things are hugely interconnected and hugely important to to consider and i think up until now i mean for many people that that's been obvious for a while for many people that are interested in that that that's very clear but i think for the many perhaps um the reality of a disruption such as the pandemic has brought about a need for adaptation in a way that some of us have not had to experience in our privileged lives where we haven't had this sort of disruption to livelihoods, disruption to our safety and security, disruption to, to the very way that we live. Now that is the norm for human society across time and even across space. There are many, of course, that have experienced that um, in our contemporary times and across human history. Many of us lived in a bit of a, a very privileged shell where that for the last several decades has not been hugely threatened. And I think that the way that people talk about, and I don't get too much into this, I guess, because it's still, still processing it as, as I think we all are, but the way that people talk about the pandemic and how much they've, when you, you get to the end, it's like, it's time we've, we've done, you know, there's a sort of sense of entitlement still that like, I've done my part. Now it's time for it to be over. That is, a little bit belligerent in the face of like physical reality. I think there's a lot of anger that people are like, this isn't fair or this is happening. And like, it's, and they're angry and they don't know where and it's like, take it up with the universe. This is just the way that it, it, it goes um, for many and always has been, unfortunately for, for life is a struggle and is a need for adaptation. 
Now, I think that we are going to continue to face more circumstances where adaptation is necessary with climate crises and perhaps with continuing pandemic and future uh, concerns and stuff like that. But what all of that, I think, is is hopefully bringing into focus is the interconnectedness of everything. And, I, you know, people in the past who have said things like, you know, why is the environment important or why do I need to care about these sorts of things? The types of experiences that we're having now just provide for more and more people the illustration as to why these things are important. It, for many, it never is a question, you know, the environment is important because it's it's all around all of us. It is what we interact with. It is everything. It is critical that it's maintained, but we've been sort of, many have been privileged enough that it's just seen as stable and uh, take, you know, taken for granted, obviously. And that's not always going to be the case and is not always the case. And the, the way that it intersects with all the different aspects of our life, I think is becoming more and more, um, revealed let's just say in our day-to-day life which then becomes uh yeah uh, uh will hopefully become an ever-growing realization so i think that the number one thing that i've in my short time on this planet seen is uh you know a growing recognition and you can see that in the interest certainly when i was a student at ubc not that long ago 15 years ago um there weren't nearly the same courses. There wasn't the same program in geography. I had no, geography wasn't on my radar at the time. It makes me so happy to have found that as an outlet for addressing these sorts of concerns and, and uh, looking at these things. But particularly, it's been, you know, the, the optimistic thing is seeing so many students interested in these types of things and, and interested in seeing how these things are intersectional and how they all overlap with one another and how these concerns cannot be siloed into um, individual disciplines or into individual sort of pursuits or, or special interests, but they impact all of us in really overlapping and important ways. Most definitely. So now moving on to a different kind of question. What do you think can be done for people who may not be interested in sustainability or climate change or these topics? What can we do or what can be done to make people interested in these types of things? Yeah, that's a tricky question. So fundamentally, education, but it's very hard. You know, you can't force everybody to learn about these things. I do really firmly believe that, and I you know, I've put a lot of stock in this fact based on what I dedicate my time doing that the more you know about something, the more you do care about it, the more you're invested in it. And, you know, that is evident in our lives in the way that I was affected when Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt got divorced. I don't know these people, but, you know, you don't know any of these people. I, I presume maybe somebody does, but, you know, the Kardashians, anything like that, all of that has been unintentionally absorbed and then somehow given value or given something, however slight. Now, that's sort of a flippant example, but I do think the same is true. If you get interested in something you do, you know, it becomes more interesting. It becomes more complex and becomes something that you can care about. So I think fundamentally learning about these things and finding ways to get people to learn about their connections to these things and their personal stake in these things is critically important. How do you do that? Obviously, it's not easy. And it's not easy when there's issues related to personal responsibility, to anything related to guilt or um, implications of your own culpability in it, it's really hard to engage people with. And so that's where I sort of think art can play a really interesting role and that it is sort of a surreptitious way 
to get people involved in this. It's, you know, I could go up to a bunch of people on the street and just start talking to them about this stuff. And most of them are just going to be angry and, and at the very best cowboy feeling a little bit bad about things and, you know, whatever. This doesn't sound like a pleasant time for anybody. Um, but if you interact with this stuff through, you know, you see a documentary, or you see a photograph, or you see something like that, that can be a really sort of insidious way uh, of implanting interest in that or resonating something there. So I think art can play a role in that sense. And again, for the third time, just I'll, I'll reference that uh, Anthropocene documentary, because the really interesting thing about that was it was primarily all visual. It was a very impactful film, but there was very, very little narrative. It was almost all just visual. So it wasn't like a lecture. It wasn't even, you know, even an impartial lecture about stuff. It was almost entirely this sort of visceral, visceral um, experience watching it, which then left you with questions about what was happening there. Same as the photographs from that project do, where you see these vast things, you know, huge lithium mines in the deserts in, in South America that are, you know, bright green, bright blue, these you know, otherworldly sort of colors, but there's no narrative attached to it. It just is there at this huge scale showing the impact of humanity. It draws you in. It, it, it makes you ask questions about those types of things. And then that I think can be hopefully a, a feedback loop where you learn a little and then you care. And not everyone's going to care about this stuff. Not everyone has the freedom or the opportunity to care about all these things, of course. Um, but I think we all have a responsibility to not perpetuate our own ignorance about these things, where wherever possible, we should be trying to understand the impact that we have in the world and be forgiving to ourselves and to others for the fact that, of course, there's going to be some negative impacts in the way that we, we interact with things. But um, I think pretending like that's not there is... is uh, not the way to do it. So if you can just get people engaged a little, hopefully that leads to, in whatever capacity people can, uh, a growing interest there. Artwork, as we have spoken about for this past time, is a wonderful way of evoking emotion and being able to connect to something. So thank you very much for sharing. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to add? Any final comments that you would like to share with us? No, I think it, it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you and thank you for asking me to do this and thank you for, for doing this. I think um, just in general, uh, you know, as I just was saying, this is important topics that affect everybody that the more discussions we can have about sort of not that this is a lower bar, but like the, 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 the way that this can, the more that it can permeate into not just being in the classroom, the more that it can just become part of the discussions we have in life. One of the things that I, I don't really understand is in life in general, is this sort of like, uh, well, maybe it's not everywhere, but this idea that it's impolite to talk about things like politics, where you don't want to have these uncomfortable conversations. And of course, uh, in a world where everything's fine, everything's going great, fine. If it's just, you know, benign topics, but that's not the circumstances. And it is important to talk about uncomfortable things and to talk about them in a respectful manner and to understand that any individual's viewpoint is not the only viewpoint. Um, and to try and be open to, to having discussions about this sort of things, uh, this sort of thing, or all these things in a uh, respectful and enthusiastic way, I think is... Uh, yeah, a really great contribution to uh, where we need to go. So thank you for that. And I, I yeah, nothing else to say other than uh, it's, it's been very enjoyable. So thank you very much for all your 
uh, questions and for allowing me to, to share some of these ideas. Yes, and thank you, of course, um, as I mentioned, for joining us. Alec Blair teaches quite a few classes now. So definitely, like I said at the beginning, um, takes a very unique approach to looking at sustainability and highly, highly recommend at least taking one class, whether you are, like I was saying, geography major or not, um, really, really recommend. So thank you very much. Thanks, Ma. It's very kind.